You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood. Simply put, everyone who reads the Bible is given the monumentally important task of interpreting it faithfully. If you're like me, you think this book was given to us by God through inspired human authors, and you're trying to live your whole life by what it says. In that case, understanding it correctly is a big deal. In this episode, I'd like to give you some tools to use as you read the Bible for yourself, so that you can confidently read and understand what it says to us today. The biggest challenge that biblical interpreters face, in a word, is distance. As we discussed last week, the Bible was written very long ago in distant places by people speaking entirely different languages and from cultures and walks of life that are so different from a modern readers that it would be easy for us to throw our hands in the air and say that we really can't know for certain what they meant, that we should just give up this whole exercise before we even begin. And to some degree, that point of view has merit in that we do need to remain keenly aware of those distances so that we can avoid forcing things from our own context into the Bible to make it mean something it doesn't. Fortunately, we do have a number of tools at our disposal when it comes to understanding what the writers of Scripture intended to communicate to us, their readers. We have a wealth of scholarship about the original languages of the Bible, archaeological research, cultural studies, historical records, and so forth that can help us translate the significance of the words in addition to just their meanings. One of our goals as readers of the Bible is to try and understand the ancient world that these words were written out of and into, so that we can learn how they would have felt and understood it, and how they would have applied it, which then becomes a lesson in how we should feel and apply the same passage in our day and time. That's the goal of reading the Bible. Every time you open this book, your job is to translate not just between languages, but between worlds, from theirs to ours. Take, for example, the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a well-known parable, or a short story with some allegorical components, that Jesus told the crowd one day to illustrate a greater point he was making about what it means to love your neighbor. It's so well-known, in fact, that most of us in the modern world hear the word Samaritan, and we automatically think of someone who is helpful toward other people. Because we've lost touch with the time and place in which this story was originally told, We don't intuitively feel the shock that Jesus' original audience would have experienced when he introduced a Samaritan of all people as the hero of his story. But if you'll recall from the story of the Bible I told a few episodes ago, the Samaritans were the enemy in Jesus' context as a Judean. They were viewed as hated outsiders that could never do anything good or be right in any situation. In some ways, they were regarded as even worse than the Romans. Knowing that one historical detail completely changes how I read this story. It's no longer just about the goodness of this man who happened to be from a place called Samaria. No, it's about showing kindness to your worst enemy, someone who would gladly leave you for dead under the same circumstances, while also expecting nothing in return for your effort. It's also a slap in the face to anyone who thinks that God's righteousness is determined by national or ethnic identity. Some other great examples where context really changes the meaning of what you might read in the Bible come from the Old Testament, where you'll often read that God did this or that 
with an outstretched arm. In modern English, that word picture almost conveys that he's stretched to the end of his ability. But in Hebrew, that figure of speech refers to his willingness to act. It's saying that he's on the move, actively doing something about the situation. An even more dangerous potential misunderstanding is in Psalm 23, which might be the most quoted chapter in the whole Bible. In many English translations, it begins with the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First of all, I have to point out that the quality of our comprehension in this chapter is going to depend on how much we understand the process of caring for livestock, and that's pretty foreign to most of us here in the 21st century. But even more immediately, I have to ask, what's wrong with wanting? I've known several Christians who grew up in a cultural context that had been influenced by Buddhism, so they had been taught that desire is the root of all suffering. When they became Christians, they read this chapter and they unconsciously filtered it through that mindset. What they heard was that it's wrong to have desires. Years of confusion and heartache later, they learned that the word want really means lack. A better translation, especially for them, might be, Because the Lord is my shepherd, I can trust him to provide for my every need. God created us with hearts that are designed to earnestly long for good things, so this isn't a warning against any and all desires. Instead, it's a promise from God that as our shepherd, he intends to provide fulfillment for every desire that he placed inside of us. Now, while we're on the subject of interpreting the Bible, it's worth talking about the fact that this is literature. Yes, I believe it's divinely inspired and that it holds a special authority found in no other literature ever written, but that doesn't mean it's written in a totally alien style that's unlike anything else on earth. In fact, it's quite the opposite. For the most part, the authors of the Bible wrote in the same style as any other literature that was available in their cultures. As modern-day readers, that means two things for us. First, before trying to gain wisdom from any passage, it's good to identify what kind of document am I reading? Second, it's helpful to know as much as we can about the literary styles of people in those places and times, to sort of put ourselves in their shoes as readers and writers so that we can understand what they would have meant. To illustrate the first of these two points, let me run you through a little scenario that a teacher of mine came up with a long time ago. Imagine receiving a communique from someone you know that says the words, I need to see you as soon as possible. Without any further context, I admit there's a lot we can glean from that in terms of meaning. Obviously, this person feels a sense of urgency and needs a moment of your time for some reason, but the context and the identity of the sender can have an immense impact on what this could mean. First, imagine that this is a letter from your doctor saying that she needs to see you as soon as possible. Now that doesn't sound good, and you should definitely schedule the next available appointment. Now imagine that it's a text from an acquaintance that you've heard is going through a hard time at home and that they feel they need to see you as soon as possible. Now that's an entirely different set of emotions. If we're being really honest here, you may or may not feel any urgency about the situation depending on how well you know this person and what level of obligation you feel you have in terms of resolving their problem. Hopefully you'll still go to see them, but it's not the same level of urgency as the scenario involving the doctor. Third, imagine that what you've received is a love note from your spouse. Maybe it's written on stationery that smells like their perfume or cologne, and there are rose petals drawn all around the note, which says that they need to see you as soon as possible. 
Now those words are flooded with passion instead of fear, desire instead of obligation. The sense of urgency is still there, but not because of danger. I could keep making up dozens of different scenarios using those same words, I need to see you as soon as possible, but I think I've made my point. Context matters, and a big part of context is the type of communication involved. A love note isn't the same as a letter from your doctor. The Bible works the same way. It contains poetry, personal letters between friends, historical records, legal codes, collected sayings, and prophetic oracles. And each type has its own standards for interpretation. A list of names in a historical record is probably intended to convey who was actually present at a particular time and place, while the same list in a poem might just be for comparison purposes. A letter between friends might suggest a course of action that applies to a specific situation, while a legal code is, by definition, intended to cover all the people in a nation without exceptions. What I'm not saying here is that we need to memorize a list of 37 guidelines for each type of literature, yada yada yada. Instead, what I'm saying is to use your intuition and take the text along with its literary context in order to get a fuller picture. Along with that, Keep an eye out for the same literary tools that modern writers use, such as analogies, similes, and metaphors. Many Bible translations include footnotes that will let you know when a writer is using wordplay in a passage, or when one part of scripture directly quotes another. There are also a few other clever tricks that ancient writers frequently used, such as repeating key phrases using slightly different words for emphasis, or proving your point by stating a possible objection in the form of a question, and then immediately answering it. The writers of scripture do all of those things and more, and with time and experience, you'll become accustomed to the way that they're trying to communicate with us thousands of years later. I once had a Bible teacher who would say that a proof text without a context is just a pretext. Now, what did he mean by that? When we say proof text, we mean a quotation from scripture that I might use to support a particular point of view. If I want to explain to you that God disapproves of stealing, for instance, I'd probably quote Exodus 20 verse 15, and that's a valid use of that text as proof of what I'm trying to say, because not only does the verse simply say, don't steal, but the greater context is the Ten Commandments, and that backs up the interpretation that God disapproves of stealing. The problem is that there are so many people in the church who will take a verse, or maybe even just a phrase, or a single word, out of context and they'll make it say something that the original author had no intention of saying. I heard an anecdotal story once of a preacher using the first part of Amos 4 verse 6 to say that God cares about oral hygiene. The verse begins by saying, I gave you clean teeth in all of your cities. So, sure, at face value that sounds like divine dentistry. But if you keep reading the verse, you find that it's talking about a lack of bread. This was a famine that God used as a wake-up call to a nation that had turned to wickedness and rebellion. So quoting this one phrase to promote flossing is dishonest. That's where the pretext part comes in. By the way, I'm not saying that you shouldn't brush regularly. What I'm saying is that if dentistry is in the Bible, then let's find the place where it actually talks about taking care of your teeth. Now that's a pretty extreme example, and the results were fortunately harmless. But what happens when it's something more important? Matthew chapter 7 opens by saying, Don't judge, or else you will also be judged. Now, if I had a dollar for every time this verse has been quoted to say that 
nobody has a right to correct anyone else's behavior, well, let's just say I'd be very willing to receive that many dollars. The problem is that Jesus isn't saying, never judge anyone. The very next verse is a warning that the same measurement you use on others will be applied to you. So the real message is to get your business in order before you stick your nose in someone else's. However, there definitely is a time and a place for intervening in another Christian's life when their conduct doesn't match their beliefs. The context of every word, every letter in the Bible matters. Words only truly make sense within the verses and sentences that they're a part of. And from there, it's our duty as readers to look at the paragraph, the chapter, and even the entire book to understand what it is we're reading. Ultimately, the entire Bible is the larger context that each book is a part of, so we use the parts of the Bible that are clear to make sense of the parts that are less clear. We interpret Scripture using Scripture. The next thing that I want to draw your attention to as readers and interpreters of the Bible is that it's been translated from ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into English, or any other language that you read it in for that matter. And translation is every bit as much an art as it is a science. Like it or not, the people who produced any translation of the Bible had to contend with figures of speech that don't translate well into other languages. Not to mention words that have complex and nuanced meanings, passages that could be interpreted two different ways depending on context, things like that. Now, I'm willing to believe that most Bible translators have done their best to avoid filtering the meaning of the Bible through their own ideas and preconceptions. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a perfect translation. Fortunately, that doesn't mean you need to learn ancient Hebrew to be able to read and enjoy the Bible confidently. Though if you do have the means to learn the original languages, I can say from personal experience that it can be very enriching. Short of that, though, I recommend at least being aware of what kind of translation you're reading from. The dilemma that all translators face is whether to use a literal method or to go with what's called dynamic equivalence. A literal translation will strictly convey what the original said, word for word, from one language to another. This method produces a very accurate text, but it's usually awkward to read and requires readers to understand the colloquialisms of the original language. On the other end, we have dynamic equivalence, which means that they've tried to translate thought for thought. The upside here is that the translation is much smoother and easier to read, but it inevitably loses some of its original meaning and there's more interpretation going on through the translation process than there would be with a literal approach. Most translators try to aim somewhere between those two extremes, and most will readily identify which side they tend to veer into. Before we get into the specifics of different translations and the linguistic philosophies and scholarship that went into each of them, I'd like to warn you that trying to sort between them can feel a little bit like eating a bowl of alphabet soup. For instance, if you see the letters NLT after a quoted Bible verse, it's not a new type of sandwich, it stands for New Living Translation, which is a less literal, more dynamic version designed for easy, day-to-day -day reading rather than scholarly study. Along those same lines, most Bible translations have names that have been shortened into acronyms like NLT, NASB, ESV, NIV. The list goes on. Anyone with even a moderate interest in reading the Bible will need to become accustomed to seeing those letters after a quotation and recognizing them as referring to a specific translation. 
Now, if you can only choose one translation of the Bible to read, my recommendation would be to choose one relatively close to the center, like the New International Version, or NIV, since both sides of the spectrum offer something of value. However, since we live in the age of Bible apps that contain dozens or even hundreds of translations, all at the tips of your fingers, I think the best approach is to choose two translations, one from each side, to read together. That way you have the assurance of knowing that if an idea comes across in both translations, it's definitely solid. You'll probably also find that the more literal translation will be better for studying and teaching situations, while the natural language of the dynamic one will be better suited for speaking to your heart. If you want to do this, I can recommend the NLT as a plain language dynamically equivalent translation and the New American Standard Bible, or NASB, as your literal version. However, some people might find that the NASB is a bit too stiff for their taste, so if that's you, the English Standard Version, or ESV, is almost as literal, but it's considerably easier to read. Before we move on from here, I do have to warn you that not all translations are 100% reliable. First of all, there are a number of versions of the Bible that go past the dynamic equivalence end of the spectrum and land in a category that we call paraphrases. In a paraphrase, the text has been so reworded and reinterpreted that it's not really a translation anymore. Think of them more as retellings of the biblical message. The best-known example here might be The Message, which was composed a few decades ago by a man named Eugene Peterson. Now, there's nothing at all wrong with reading a paraphrase, and The Message is a great supplement to your Bible reading. Sometimes I'll read something in a translated Bible and I understand it, but when I read it in The Message, it really comes to life in a new way. On the other hand, there are some truly weird paraphrases out there that try to reframe the Bible's events as if they occurred in the modern world, or in outer space, or in countless other new contexts. So be smart and be careful not to entrust your life to anything that's not actually the Bible. Honestly, the best way to safeguard against the weirdness that's out there is to avoid reading a paraphrase by itself as your only Bible. If you do read one, I recommend doing so alongside a more scholarly, literal translation, and you should always check back with a real translation before applying anything to your life. One last thing to be cautious of is that a few translations are written from one specific theological, denominational, or cultural perspective, like the Complete Jewish Bible or the Passion Translation. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with reading these either, but the fact that they represent only one tradition means that, by design, the translators intended to offer their own interpretation along with what was originally written. So please read them with caution. And if you discover a detail in a single translation or paraphrase that's not represented in any of the others, I strongly urge you to be skeptical. Honestly, please feel free to send those discoveries my way. I would love to do a series investigating the differences between various versions of the Bible. On that note, I'd like to remind everyone that I'm open to feedback and to all sorts of questions about anything whatsoever, but I'm still especially interested in your take on what the basics of Christianity are. I'm probably a couple episodes away from wrapping up this season, but there's still time to submit your questions and topics, and I am all ears. Meanwhile, please join me next week for a summary of what Christians believe, the core tenets of our theology that we derive from the Bible, among other sources. 
I'll see you then. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time.